Lewis had a very high view of the importance of the implicit in literature, of saying things indirectly, not stating everything explicitly, but suggesting it, letting the reader work it out for himself, making the, the reader a sort of interactive agent with the, with the story and with the author, respecting the reader to be able to work things out rather than spoon-feeding everything to the reader. It's a very Socratic method of, of uh, writing. It's like the Socratic method of teaching. A good Socratic teacher will ask questions so that the, the pupil, the student, can work out the answer uh, without being, you know, told everything. And that, you know, respects the, the integrity, the independence of, of the reader, the student, um, it's a, it's a much better way than laying everything out with wearisome explicitness. By indirections, find directions out. So says Polonius in Hamlet. By indirections find directions out. Come at the truth obliquely. Don't attempt a frontal assault. Emily Dickinson says something very similar in one of her poems. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. There are some things that are best approached in a roundabout fashion. Some things that can only be seen out of the corner of one's eye. This mindset runs counter to a lot of modern thinking. We tend to think that if only we can wrestle a thing into submission, fix it on a laboratory counter and inspect it under a microscope, then we will find out its truth. But not necessarily. It all depends on the nature of the thing we're trying to understand. Sometimes the best way is to stand under in order to understand, not to stand over it and to dominate it. As Blake says, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Lewis was very much in the tradition of Polonius and Dickinson and Blake in this respect. He was keenly interested in the value of implicit communication, the value of saying things indirectly, circuitous approaches, kissing joys as they fly. He declared himself to be interested in imaginative hiddenness, and it's a major element of his literary thinking as a critic. In 1940, Lewis gave an address to the Martlets, the Literary Society at University College, Oxford. The paper was entitled The Kappa Element in Romance. Kappa is the initial letter of the Greek word krypton, meaning cryptic or hidden. So the title of Lewis's paper basically means the hidden element in story. That's what romance means in this context. A story, not a love affair. And Lewis later reworked this essay, The Kappa Element in Romance, under a different title, On Stories, published in 1947 and readily available now in many collections. And although he dropped the term kappa from this essay on stories, the hidden thing itself was still his main concern. By this stage in his career, 
Lewis tended to call it by a number of different terms, of which atmosphere is probably the most common. Atmosphere is somewhat uh, is a somewhat inadequate word to describe what Lewis was concerned with. But then he once complained how his critical interests have no vocabulary. Historical criticism and character criticism had, in his view, by long practice, perfected their own terminology. Aided by the fact that their concerns were those that people were accustomed to handling in the everyday business of life. But the things I want to talk about, Lewis says, have no vocabulary, and criticism has for centuries kept almost complete silence on them. He mentions certain pioneering studies in the field, Caroline Spurgeon's Shakespeare's imagery and what it tells us, and Maud Bodkin's archetypal patterns in poetry, and he also names Wilson Knight and Owen Barfield among those scholars who are attending to the same sort of critical terrain. But he brings no terms out of their works, and nor does he forge any permanent terms of his own. He uses a variety of words to catch his meaning. They include the ipsetas, the peculiar unity of effect produced by a special balancing and patterning of thoughts and classes of thoughts, a state or a quality, a flavour or an atmosphere, a smell or a taste, a mood, a quiddity. In a comic poem that he wrote, he tries to summarise it in this way. Q is for quality, otherwise whatness, the gauntness of Ghent or the totness of totness. Totness being a, a place in Devon, England. Again and again, in defending works of romance, Lewis argues that it's the quality or tone of the whole story that, it's, that is its main attraction. The invented world of romance is conceived with this kind of qualitative richness because romancers feel the real world itself to be cryptic, significant, full of voices and the mystery of life. Lovers of romances go back and back to such stories in the same way that we go back to a fruit for its taste. To an air for, for what? For itself, Lewis says. To a region for its whole atmosphere. To Donegal for its Donegality. And to London for its Londonness. It is notoriously difficult to put these tastes into words, he says. And that this atmospheric quality is virtually inexpressible leads Lewis to speak of it at times as a spiritual thing. For instance, it is the vast, empty vision of Hamlet that is, in his view, Shakespeare's chief accomplishment. The sense that a certain spiritual region has somehow been captured by the use of images such as night, ghosts, a sea cliff, a graveyard, and a pale man in black clothes. Within the mesh of these images, the mysterious flavour of Hamlet is caught and communicated to the attentive reader or theatre-goer. Likewise, in David Lindsay's novel Voyage to Arcturus, the planet Torments is so described that it amounts to an encapsulation of a region of the spirit. The net of the story, the events, the characters, the background descriptions, they temporarily ensnare, as if it were a kind of elusive bird, a sheer state of being. 
and for the duration of the reed, this bird's plumage may be enjoyed, Lewis says. Now, enjoyment is almost always used by Lewis in a particularly significant way. And here I need to digress briefly to clarify the importance that the term had for him. Enjoyment, for Lewis, was to be distinguished from contemplation. This distinction he first encountered in 1924 in the work of the philosopher Samuel Alexander, and it was important enough for him to record it in his diary. I took Alexander's book, Space, Time and Deity, and went to Wadham College, where I sat and walked in the garden, reading the introduction, enjoying the beauty of the place, and greatly interested by my author's truthful antithesis of enjoyment and contemplation. Lewis was later to describe this antithesis as an indispensable tool of thought. And Walter Hooper doesn't claim too much, I think, when he says that Alexander's book was of overwhelming importance to Lewis. Lewis applied what we might call this Alexander technique to many departments of life, in addition to literary criticism. And he thought it so useful that he eventually wrote his own essay on the subject, Meditation in a Toolshed, in which he recasts contemplation and enjoyment in the following way. I was standing today in the dark toolshed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no toolshed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, ninety-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam, and looking at the beam, are very different experiences. Now, looking along the beam is what Alexander had called enjoyment. That is to say, participant knowledge, inhabited, personal, committed knowledge. And looking at the beam is what Alexander had called contemplation. Abstract knowledge, external, impersonal, uninvolved knowledge. And for Lewis, this distinction was so fundamental that he was prepared to divide conscious knowledge accordingly. He said, instead of the twofold division into conscious and unconscious, we need a threefold division. The unconscious, the enjoyed, and the contemplated. Like the ancient Persians who debated everything twice, once when they were sober and once when they were drunk, we should try out every question that presents itself to us in both lights. The light of enjoyment and the light of contemplation. Enjoyment is like the Spanish uh, term, connoisseur. And contemplation is like the Spanish term, saber. You get this distinction in many languages, in French, connaître and savoir, for instance. Well, having got some clarity, I hope, on what Lewis meant by enjoyment, we can now return to his essay on stories. When Lewis writes there that this elusive atmospheric state of being that may be captured in a romance is to be enjoyed, he means it not only in the normal sense of being appreciated or welcomed, 
but also in this specific Alexander sense. The atmosphere should be entered into so that it comprises our whole imaginative vision. If we attempt not to enjoy, but rather to contemplate a tale's atmosphere, well, we will find the quality going dead and cold in our hands because we will have stopped living the story. For this atmosphere isn't one of the abstractions of literary criticism, but rather a description of concrete imagination in practice. It is the full tasting of a work of art on the imaginative palate. If we are properly to enjoy it, we must surrender ourselves with childlike attention to the mood of the story, Lewis says. And it's for this reason that atmosphere is so difficult to put into words. For really, in any given work of art, it is that whole work and its total effect, not any desiccated critical account of it, which is the thing Lewis is trying to categorise. If the atmosphere could have been communicated in any briefer way than the whole work, presumably the artist would have written a shorter work. Since the artist hasn't written a shorter work, we must be content to accept that every part of the story is necessary for the intended effect upon our literary taste buds. We must attempt to be inclusive and not discriminate between what we imagine to be the important and unimportant aspects of the work. Lewis says this, A child is always thinking about those details in a story which a grown-up regards as indifferent. If, when you first told the tale, your hero was warned by three little men appearing on the left of the road, and when you tell it again you introduce one little man on the right of the road, the child protests. And the child is right. You think it makes no difference, because you are not living the story at all. If you were, you would know better. Motifs, machines and the like are abstractions of literary history and therefore interchangeable. But concrete imagination knows nothing of them. And since this literary atmosphere has to be enjoyed rather than contemplated, it is, in a sense, invisible. When, in his meditation in a toolshed, Lewis looked along the beam... Remember, he saw no toolshed and, above all, no beam. Likewise, the inner meaning of a romance can't be flagged up by the author without altering its true nature. It has to remain hidden, woven into the warp and woof of the story, so that it comprises not an object of contemplation, but the whole field of vision within which the story is experienced. This kappa element is more like seeing than it is like something seen. Just as you can't take out your eyeballs and turn them round in order to look back at your own optical organs, so you can't jump out of this state of being and uh, look back at it. It is a mode of enjoyment consciousness. By its very nature, knowable but not explicit. It took Lewis until 1940 to coin this term kappa element, but he'd valued the thing itself for over two decades before that date. In the early years of his correspondence with his Belfast friend Arthur Greaves, we can note several straws in the wind that indicate the future trajectory of his literary critical interests. 
Writing to Greaves in 1916, Lewis praises the Gawain poet's power of getting up atmosphere. He also enthuses about the magical use of words in the works of William Morris and George MacDonald, that, like a composer's orchestration of a melody, fill the matter by expressing things that can't be directly told. In that same year, 1916, he composed a story called The Quest of Bleheris and sent it to Greaves for his comments, which were not initially very positive. Lewis wasn't abashed. He wrote back, You will like the main gist of the story even less when you grasp it, if you ever do. For, as is proper in romance, the inner meaning is carefully hidden. Lewis's interest in literary hiddenness, then, it goes back to his teenage years. However, it's not just to his own work that we should look for precedence in this connection. We should also consider the work of those writers whom he read and studied most closely. For instance, Edmund Spencer. Spencer disguised Venus in The Fairy Queen, so Lewis argues in Spencer's Images of Life, because he was drawing on the tradition of Neoplatonic thought, which deemed it proper that all great truths should be veiled, should be treated mythically by the prudent. It's for the same reason that the good is usually hidden in Spencer, and that the Fairy Queen generally is dangerous, cryptic, its every detail loaded with unguessed meaning. And as with the fairy romance, so with the literary mask. The iconography of masks could be extremely sophisticated, Lewis argues. In fact, much of the effort in writing them must have gone into subtle finessing on the well-known iconographical types, into progressively lightening the touch in pursuit of the ideal of multum in parvo, much in little. One particular element that was hidden or finessed by these techniques was divine presence. Lewis puts it this way, in the medieval allegories and the Renaissance masks, God, if we may say so without irreverence, appears frequently but always incognito. Sir Philip Sidney neatly expressed the prevailing aesthetic temper of the period when he wrote, There are many mysteries contained in poetry, which of purpose were written darkly, lest by profane wits it should be abused. In an age long before universal schooling and mass communication, and when the idea of using the vernacular instead of Latin for religious purposes was still a relative novelty, it was customary to think in such categories. To a typically modern sensibility, there can only be precious and elitist reasons for such exclusivity. But in earlier times, the distinctions which these habits of thought maintained would have been felt to be real and valuable. Since both pearls and swine were believed to exist, it was important not to throw the former before the latter. And Lewis's professional life was largely given over to nurturing the relevance, the continuing importance of the mindset which operated in the literature of medieval and Renaissance Europe. His models were Dante, Spencer, Sidney, and others of their kind who practiced literary formality and self-control and who considered rhetorical masks, maskings and layerings to be very valuable. 
if, from a literary point of view, we're trying to find out why Lewis had such an interest in hiddenness, we need look no further than his admiration for the example provided by these writers. Not, of course, that he had to reach all the way back to medieval and renaissance times to find authors who could be cryptic or oblique or circuitous. From time to time, Lewis applauded the use made of silence by writers as contemporary as Walter de la Mare and John Galsworthy. He also had a devout respect for the works of George MacDonald, who provided him with an especially good precedent for keeping quiet about his artistic intentions. In a Socratic dialogue on the, on the fantastic imagination, MacDonald wrote this, but surely you would explain your idea to one who asked you. I say again, if I cannot draw a horse, I will not write, this is a horse, under what I foolishly meant for one. Any key to a work of imagination would be nearly, if not quite, as absurd. Well, Lewis provided a key in the form of chapter headlines, running explanatory headlines, to the third edition of his earliest work of fiction, The Pilgrim's Regress. But he did so, he said, with great reluctance, and only because he considered the allegory in that book to have failed. It was excessively obscure, he says. Successful works of literature don't need to be explained by their author. They speak for themselves. They don't always speak directly about their subject, it may be necessary to adopt a very roundabout and indirect approach, but they certainly shouldn't need to be accompanied by a crib sheet. It's instructive, I think, to survey the many occasions on which Lewis praised the indirect approach in communication. He believed that success in writing comes about by secretly evoking powerful associations, that expressions should not merely state, but suggest that the mechanism in poetry by which its effects are obtained should not be too visible. That what the reader is made to do for himself has a particular importance. That an influence which cannot evade our consciousness will not go very deep. That silences could be dialectical that silences could make certain things audible. And for Lewis, there were two kinds of silence, the good kind and the bad. The bad kind features in the title of the first volume of his Ransom trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. The silent planet is planet Earth, out of which comes the hero of the trilogy, Dr. Elwyn Ransom, on a journey to Mars. And Ransom discovers that in the language of Mars, planet Earth is known as Thulcandra. Earth is Thulk, silent, because she doesn't join in the music of the spheres. Earth's presiding intelligence has nothing to say or sing to the other planetary angels. Earth's silence is a dumb silence, a dead silence. Mars, and indeed all the other planets, are also silent as far as the inhabitants of Earth are concerned, but for a very different reason. It's not because these other planets are sullenly mute that they are not heard. On the contrary, they're not heard because their singing is perpetual. 
As Lewis explained in an address entitled Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages, the music of the spheres is the only sound which has never for one split second ceased in any part of the universe. With this positive, we have no negative to contrast. Presumably, if it ever did stop, then with terror and dismay, with a dislocation of our whole auditory life, we should feel that the bottom had dropped out of our lives. But it never does stop. The music which is too familiar to be heard enfolds us day and night and in all ages. In the pre-Copernican model of the cosmos, the planets were silent and sounding at the same time. Their music was not heard on Earth because it was always heard on Earth. And it's this sort of silence, a pregnant silence, resonant with significance, that I believe Lewis had a particular interest in capturing in his fiction. And why? Well, because such a silence is a good symbol of God. The paradoxical utterance of the heavens, at once both audible and inaudible, is a great way of symbolizing the divine presence in human affairs. We are apt to think either that God is completely absent from us, or that God is a being in the universe rather like us, only bigger, better, more powerful. But it's a mistake to think either of these ways, either that God is completely absent or that he's just like us, only more powerful. God isn't just another being in the universe, not just the biggest thing around, but the source of all things, the ground of all being. As creator, God doesn't feature in creation, except in a sense similar to the sense that Shakespeare features in Hamlet originating and sustaining and ordering the whole play. God silently sounds in all things, so to speak. In him we live and move and have our being, as St Paul says in the book of Acts. The task of trying to present that ubiquitous but ontologically distinct presence of God in creation, or perhaps it would be better to say of creation in God, was one of the major tasks that Lewis set himself as a Christian writer. And in my next lecture, I will suggest one way in which I think he attempted to undertake this task, and it will involve saying a great deal more about his scholarly understanding of the medieval cosmos. Mm -hmm.